So, my understanding of what tonight's about is, number one, to encourage you, good Catholics, right, that we are intellectuals. As I said before, St. Thomas has a great belief in the mind, that we are made in the image and likeness of God. And building on the work of St. Augustine, Thomas says the image of God is that which is closest. There's something about God that's in God and in us that brings us closer. We, we, at some level, we, we share. And he says this is intelligence. That God is intelligent and we are intelligent. So the, you, by using our intelligence, it's a way of us actually getting closer to God. Right? Because some people say, you know, talk about theism, as they call it, which is just the pure, I believe, and that's it. And there's no discussion and no thought going into it. I just believe in God because I believe in God and because church says I believe in God and I believe in God. That's not Catholic. We're not fides. We are believers. And as believers, we can use our mind. And the, 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 um, the theological virtue of hope, of, of faith, allows us to believe the things of the gospel. This is the veritas prima, first truth. Okay, so our minds, and as preachers and teachers of the Catholic faith, we want to open up our minds to the truth. So often we're told to be a believing Catholic, you have to close your mind. No. But you must open your mind to the truth, and that the truth can be known, and ultimately the truth is Christ. Okay. So, there's no doubt that the book I have in front of me here, Summa Theology of St. Thomas Aquinas, right, is one of the greatest books ever written, if not agreed, the greatest book ever written for the Catholic Church, okay? At any moment in time, you can stop me and ask a question, okay? Because this is sort of seminarish, okay? And I, as I said before, maybe that's you, I, I've awfully said, there's no such thing as a stupid question. There is such a thing as a stupid answer. Okay. So, why did Thomas write this book? Well, first of all, St. Thomas was born when? In 1221, uh, <laughs> wasn't he? Hang on a second. I have to bring up my country, Gentiles, to work this one now. Is he 24? Hang on. 1220. He died in 1274, anyway. That's quite obvious. Hang on a second. Where did Yes, I'm right. He was born in 1224, and died in 1274, on the 7th of March, 7, 1274. Okay. His parents, he was from a local royal sort of, well, I won't say royal, aristocratic family, south of Rome, near Naples, a place called Rocca Secca. Um, he was sent to Subiaco, not Subiaco, to Monte Cassino, which was the great Benedictine centre of study. The plan was, they say, that he would remain and be a Benedictine and that he would become an abbot and that would be acceptable to his father and his mother because he would he'd be a rich cleric and he'd have prestige about him, you see. But Thomas turned out, of course, to be exceptionally bright. There's a great story. As a young boy, he asked the abbot, 
Quid est Deus? What is God? I actually saw the head in Naples. It says, this is the head of St. Thomas that says, Quid est Deus? And I asked the Italian Dominican one time, how could you have the head of the young St. Thomas? It's very simple. A new one grew and that fell off. So all these Italians can come up with this. Okay, so St. Thomas moved. Some people say at the instigation of the Benedictines to, to study in the new university in Naples. And he studied under the fellow of Peter of Ireland. Okay. And he was introduced to Aristotle. And Aristotle's belief in the natural world and natural intelligence and that we could find things out. We could make uh, real uh, uh, statements about true things. Okay. Uh, St. Thomas, of course, being a classic scholar in the sense of coming from the old world, he affirmed reality. I like, for instance, what does that mean? I'm actually sitting here looking at you. And I believe you're out there. <laughs> right? I believe you're not figments of my imagination. Whereas Descartes comes along in the 17th century and begins with the methodic doubt. By doubting everything. And that's where we are, unfortunately, in the modern world. The modern world begins with doubt. And you have to prove everything. And I, myself, am the instigator of proof, if I accept it or not. Where Thomas, coming from Aristotle and the classical world, we affirm reality. And so Aristotle opened his mind to this. And interesting then, that's why he was in Naples, he, became, he was introduced to the Dominicans, which was a new movement in the church at the time. Not Benedictine, um, not established, not seen as being very proper. These people who were going to live in poverty... Um, who was who on who were who were to bring the gospel into the cities? They were not to live out in the countries like the monks and study the word of God for themselves out in the countryside. Which would Saint Dominic, the Dominicans were to be in the cities and preaching the gospel into the reality of people's lives today. And that's what Thomas decided he wanted to do. He didn't want to go back. Monte Cassino to become a monk again but he wanted to be with the Dominicans meditating on the word of God and preaching his parents didn't like this but anyway that's in my mind there's another load of stories there because who were these new weirdos okay so eventually anyway when the Dominic joined the Dominicans and he went to Paris to study under St. Albert the Great and they realised that he was very bright. And there's a great story. They used to call him the dumb ox because he was fat and pudgy and he didn't speak too much, Thomas, they just say. And the other students used to laugh at him because he was always thinking, you see. And one day St. Albert the Great said, I'm telling you, he said, someday Europe will listen to the baying of that ox. Thomas went to, went to Germany then with Albert the Great, studied more of Aristotle, came back to Paris, did all sorts of things. But the Dominicans decided that he was undoubtedly a great intellect. 
And at the general chapter in the, in, in, in the 1250s, they got a group of people together to come up with a new, basically, a new theology course. And when you look back, who was on the, who was on the commission? Thomas Aquinas, Albert the Great, Peter, I mean, some of the greats of the intellectual life of the Dominican order got together. But Thomas was asked to go to Santa Sabina, which is the general house in Rome, and to set up there a studium for students to study theology. So they said to him, look, Thomas, you have a clear carte blanche. What do you think students should be studying for Catholic theology? And so he sat down and he basically started to write the summa. So this is a course of Catholic theology from Thomas. And he says, Quia catholicae veritatis doctor non solum provectores debit instruere, sed ad eum pertinet etiam incipientes erudire. Okay? Because the master of Catholic truth ought not only to teach the proficient, okay, but also to instruct beginners. The purpose of this book, he said, is to treat of whatever belongs to the Christian religion in such a way as may tend to the instruction of believers. Okay. So St. Thomas, so your incipientes, your beginners. So Thomas wrote it for the beginners. And so, what I have before you is my Latin copy of the Summa and my English edition of the Summa. The Summa is divided into three parts. The first part is called the first part. The second part is called the second part. The third part is called the third part. Right? It's a bit more difficult than that. The first part is the first part. The second part was so big he divided into two. So you have the first part of the second part, and you have the second part of the second part. Okay. So this is part of this is Western um, our, this is Western your Western intellectual tradition I'm teaching you now. The prima pars is the first part. The prima secunde is the first part of the second part. The secunde secunde is the second part of the second part, and the tertia pars is the third part. Now, there's also what we call, at the end of that, the supplementum, because like all the greats, Thomas didn't finish writing it. Mozart never finished his final uh, symphony. One day in 1274, <coughs> Thomas was on his way to the... Um, Council of Florence. Pope had asked him to come to the Council of Florence. And he stopped off at the Cistercian Monastery of Fossanova. And while he was saying Mass in Fossanova, he had a vision of whatever. We presume it was the vision of heaven or even of God. We don't know. He never said what it was. But what he did say after everything that I have seen, everything I have written is only straw. Now, this is where this gets complicated. 
What was straw used for at the time of St. Thomas? Feed cattle. Feed cattle. Toilet paper. <laughs> right? Excuse me, ladies. Well, Thomas was actually saying, after what I've seen, in his mystical experience, everything I've written is like used toilet paper. So he never wrote again. So his, his, his secretary, Blessed Reginald, when Thomas died, Blessed, Blessed Reginald continued the summer. So he started taking other things Thomas wrote, you know. And so, so that's what the summer was. So it's an idea of Christian theology. Now when you're doing theology, as youngsters, where would you begin? How, what questions would you ask to begin with? Man, this isn't the, this isn't the make or break theology stuff, you know. Um, why did the world begin? Why did the world begin? Very good. Yes, but we tend, don't we, sometimes, I suppose, in the modern world, it's from my experience. And most of our questions about God is about my experience, isn't it? You know, this is there God, isn't there? You know, many will, from my world. Thomas begins with the very first question, and this is what we did a few weeks ago. Does God exist? That's where he begins. So he's talking, he says, out there. Because he says, theology, he says, what is theology? He says, theology is about God. And it's about all things related to God, either as their first beginning or their final end. And so the first part is really a most wonderful exposition of God. Purely intellectual. There's a big fight whether it's philosophy or theology. Whether St. Thomas is more of a Greek mind and a theological. But I think it's the- Thomas is the theologian. Asking us about God. What kind of God is God? And I think generally this happened, you know, in the history of Thomas. Lots of people have read his second part, the sec- first part of the second part, the first, second part of the first part, which deals basically with morality. That's the second part, is basic morality. And the third part is Christ and the sacraments. Thomas doesn't talk about the church apart from the sacraments and everything else. He doesn't have a De Ecclesia section. So very often in the tradition people read the moral section, the whole idea of virtue and vices. Or they read the tertiary powers, which is the whole section about the life of Jesus and the sacraments. And not always do they read the first part because say that's more philosophical. But as I get older and I read this, try to read the summer most days of my life, not every day, but most days. I begin to see how much how very important the summer is, read the first part. Who is God? And Thomas' biggest question is, God is, as we said the last time, right? Being. God is. And he's not this thing or that thing or the other thing. He just is. And Thomas really, I think, as I get older, explodes, basically, our false notions of God. Or as we tend to invent God with our hang-ups and our problems. Thomas' other sisters know. So Thomas 
That was this concept of God, which I believe is true, the Catholic Christian God. You know, he's not a, a nervous breakdown God. He's completely happy in himself, in the communion of the Blessed Trinity. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. There's no lacking in God. And so there's a great mystery. Why did he create us? And God, of course, we just say it's God's goodness. It's the fusion of goodness. Okay. So the first part, he talks about God and the angels. Any of you in philosophy here? No. If you're doing philosophy, you want the best section of philosophy on metaphysics is on angels. Right. St. Thomas has a wonderful section of the angels here in the Prima Pars, right? So that's the first section. He talks about God and also about creation in the sense of humanity, okay? okay. Second part then he looks at the human almost, the human person. Some people would say, Thomas is trying to say here, here is God, here is man made in his image and likeness, the human person. And the third one is, of course, Christ. Right? So that's all the image of God, okay? So the second section looks at humanity. And very much in the, you have to get one thing about Thomas. Thomas, as I said before to you, believes in the goodness of God. And believes in the goodness of creation. And this is fundamentally his understanding of the human person when he comes to look at us in our, the morality of the human person. That the human person is made good. Why? Because we're made by God, exactly. We, because we have being, <laughs> we are. Okay? So we are fundamentally good. Creation is fundamentally good. And so the Thomistic um, vision of humanity is primarily positive and good. Now he does talk about sin, because sin is a reality. Now we talked about the last time, why did God allow evil into the world? And Thomas's answer was, why did God allow evil? Because he can bring good out of it. And that's what Thomas' ultimate answer to why evil. And that evil isn't a thing, it's a lack of goodness. Remember, there's a lack of goodness. That's what evil is for Thomas. So Thomas says we are basically made good, but sin has entered the world. And we're not as good as we could be. <laughs> and we're not as good as we should be, right? And I'm not just talking here, I mean, but, all right, I'm totally ta I am only talking about morally. I'm not talking about humanly or whatever, I mean, physically. Yes, there is the overflow where, you know, we, we die, we get old, and they, these are lacks in the human reality because of sin. So there is a physical reality. The fall has affected us too, as human beings. But fundamentally... Our compass is good, but it goes in the wrong direction sometimes. 
So Thomas says, so we're good, we're very good, but we're flawed. And so he talks there about humanity. He talks about, and here he comes in as an Aristotelian. Let's look at the goodness that's in the human person. And he has a great, in the summa prima, in the prima pars, he has a very good understanding of grace builds on nature. That's another great Thomistic principle. You don't have to become something else. To be fully alive, you become a human being. So Thomas says, nature, grace builds a nature. So that when God comes in to us with his gift of grace in Christ, he's not changing us to be something else. So we don't become angels. Because angels aren't human beings. Right? Angels are angels are angels. Human beings are human beings. But human beings are meant to be graced, according to Thomas in Christ Jesus, and brought to the, him, uh, into the inner life of the Blessed Trinity. But that's another told Tertia parents. So Thomas then looks at the human being as we must, and this is our morality. And Thomas's morality is not what we think about your morality, but keeping rules and regulations. I, I often say about it, Thomas' morality is not how far you can put your hand up a girl's knee without committing sin. That's not a lot of people think that's what morality is about, right? Thomas says, that would be nasty. that question. How can you be a good person? How does it mean to grow in a good person? I remember somebody said to me one day, he said, you know, that he was homosexual. I said, right. And he said to me about the church and the rules and regulations. And I said, hang on a minute. How can you grow to be a virtuous person? What does it mean for you to be virtuous? To be honest, sorry, to be just, to be courageous, to be prudent, to be temperate. Now, they're the four moral virtues of Aristotle. Let alone now, how do you grow in faith, hope, and love? which is the theological virtues that come to us directly from God at the moment of baptism. So you see, it's a totally different question. And very often we're caught up in the earlier questions. How can I, as a broken, whatever, human being, how, how, where's my sin? No, I forget that a minute. How can you grow in virtue? How can you become more human to live virtuously. That's whole Thomas's moral theology. And I think it's that we have been ruined in the Catholic Church by not having enough Dominican moral theologians. Because <laughs> we look at things differently. Because an awful lot of moral theology is how do you get us out of trouble? Right? And it begins with sin. Thomas doesn't begin with sin. Thomas begins with God and creation and the goodness of creation. And then we have to deal with the person and what it means to be a human person who grows in, in, grows in virtue and grows also then in the theological virtues. And Thomas brings in different ideas. For instance, he looks at the moral virtue of courage. Now for Aristotle, what would be the most courageous thing you could do? Join the army. Hmm? Join the army. Exactly, join the army and fight, right? Thomas says, that's okay, as far as it goes. 
But you can also be courageous in dying. Of course, he had the, the, the thought of Christ. No greater love can a man have than he lay down his life for his friends. That you can actually be courageous not by fighting. So you take someone like Maximilian Kolbe. Was he courageous to stand out there in Auschwitz and to give his life? And Thomas says that that's an act of courage. Whereas for Aristotle, it would be an act of courage. Right? So that the, that the Christian gospel and grace has something else to bring to the virtues. But they're human virtues, first and foremost. They're human being, first and foremost. And they're elevated, purified, strengthened by grace. In the tertiary part, then, he ta- talks about Christ. Christ, the perfect human being. And he goes through all about Jesus' life. And then he talks about the sacraments of the church. Uh, one of the French Dominicans used to say that the role of the Summa was to exitus reditus. We come out from God and through the moral life in Jesus, we go back to God. Some newer people now are saying there's a different idea in Thomas's mind, but he's looking about God, the human person in Christ, and brings them all together. All right. But it's fundamentally a positive approach to the Christian gospel and to the human person. And what Thomas does then, when he presents it, he presents each one of them as a question. All right? So, this is the first part of the second part. Right? So, and he says, Since, as Damascene states, man is made, said to be made in God's image, insofar as an image implicates an intelligent being endowed with free will and self-movement. Now that we have treated of the exemplar, God, and of those things which come forth from the power of God in accordance with his will, it remains for us now to treat of his image, man, inasmuch as he too is the principle of his own actions, as having free will and control of his actions. And so the first question Thomas asks is, what is man's last end? Because for Thomas, as for Aristotle, you can't look at the terms ad quo unless you know the terms ad quem. You have to know what the end is going to be before you begin. So what is the end of man? Now he will tell us it's to be happiness, but anyway. So he looks, the first question is what is man's last end? Now, forgive the sex nature of the word, what is man's meant, but I'm using it in the English term, because in English, as you know, there is no uh, pro, not pronoun, there's no, uh, is there a pronoun? For the, the, the male. Anyway, so, so he looks, first of all, the first question is whether it belongs to man to act for an end. And then he put forward his three objections. He'll then say, said contrast. He puts forward three good objections. But as we saw the last time, we talked about the existence of God, he only puts two. Remember the presence of evil and the non-necessity for God. Because nature works. So these are two questions. And he says, however, basically, the said contrast. He put in something, usually from the fathers of the church. And then he give responsio, which is, he, I answer. 
So you have the corpus of the article in which he does his theological quest- thinking about it. And having done the theological question, he'll answer the three questions or the two questions or the four questions. So that's how the... It, it, it's not easy to read in the sense. You can't pick up this on that like we do normally now and look at page you know, seven, 212 and just keep reading. You know, or whatever. Or page one. Well, you should maybe do that tomorrow. He does... It's every question... There's a question, there's the articles of the questions, and each article has questions, objections. Thomas's thinking in the, in the response, you know, the corpus of the, quest, of the answer, and then he answers the three questions. So he's, and then he moves on to the next question. And all the time he's building... So you really can't understand Thomas in the Secunda Secunda if you don't understand Thomas in the Prima Paris. Because it all makes sense. He's built it up logically, theologically, bit by bit by bit by bit by bit. And I think it goes, the fact he didn't finish the summa is a very important insight into St. Thomas. Thomas believed in mystery. But mystery as an invitation to no more. Not to a closing down of the intellectual enterprise. And I think sometimes, even theologically, we think, oh, I have the answer, now that's finished, that's great. And we can beat people up with it. No. See, if Luther had been a Dominican, and if Luther had read St. Thomas, we would never have had the Reformation. Luther was an Augustinian who read St. Augustine. That's why we had the Reformation. <laughs> right? Uh, but there's other things you could say too. But anyway, but that's my, 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 my I do actually believe that. That's true too. Um, so what I would say to you, look, this is one of the great books of human thought. Now, it's filled with grace, there's no doubt about it, because Thomas is a holy man. He was a saint, and you can't take that out of it. But sanctity allows us to have a clarity in our way of thinking. It doesn't cloud it over at all. And even in all of our ways of thinking, not just theologically, but sanctity and holiness gives us clarity of thought. And Thomas had that. And you know hang-ups, you see. Poor Augustine had hang-ups, you know. St. Augustine had sex, and he did all sorts of strange things, and he was guilty, and all that sort of stuff. And he really had a problem with man's failures. See, Thomas didn't do nothing like that, so he had no problems. No, he didn't. I really do with it. Thomas really had a very positive view of humanity, and a very positive view of salvation, and a very positive what grace can do with nature. And he didn't have, go around burdened by guilt about his past. Because he didn't have a past. You know, he became a monk, basically, at four or five when he went to Monte Cassino. <laughs> right? And he lived all his life in the religious setting. He wasn't young and good-looking and, you know, he was pudgy and going around and thinking. And this great story about Tom, you know these great stories, that he was so fat they had to cut a corner in table because he couldn't get in of course he was fat because he didn't do exercise he was thinking all the time 
And if you say the story, he'd forget to eat. Because he'd be sitting there thinking, and he'd put the knife in front of him. And they'd have to say, eat. And there's a very famous story. He was reading, having lunch one time with the, um, I think it was the king of Naples or something. He wasn't eating. He said, but he said, oh, he said, now I understand the angelic intellect. <laughs> Pass the song, please. <laughs> so he's a different sort of a fellow. But he was, all to me anyways, was, he was utterly human. Because I think so many often we, we associate humanity with sin and fallen human nature, don't we? And I go, I, for instance, me as a priest, I go cuckoo when people say, you know, when priests do bad things, including myself, it's actually he's only human. No, he's not. He's less than human. Sinful humanity is not humanity. It's less than humanity. Right? Graced humanity is greater than humanity. But humanity is not. When God made us, he did not make us sinners. Right? So it's not human to sin. Sinner, humanity does sin. And we did because we're, we're free and, and now after original sin, we're weak and all that sort of stuff. But that wasn't the way God made us. So I'm always a bit annoyed when I hear people going on about that as an excuse. Sure, you're only human. Humans are the very pinnacle of the visible creation. Yes? But after sin, we're the worst. The, the animals can't turn, make, what do you call those things? Atom, atomic bombs. No animal, or humanity as an animal, none, none of humanity, no animal has the ability to destroy itself. We do. It's proud of our greatness, our goodness, our minds, because we're close to God. So we are capable of the greatest because ultimately in Christ, in salvation, we become part of the Blessed Trinity. That's what our salvation is all about. You're baptised into Christ. And the Father in heaven who looks at Jesus, he looks us at us in Jesus. Remember somebody said to me one time, I can't wait to be an angel. That's why we try to be an angel. We said I'd be in heaven. Yeah, serving me. Because I'll be in the divinity. The angels won't be in the divinity. I'll be in the divinity. The angels, yes, on the natural order, are higher in flex than ours. Right? But in the supernatural order, we've been redeemed by Christ. The angels haven't. Right? So we are being baptized into Christ. We've been baptized. God has never said to, it's in the letter to the Hebrews, God has never said to any angel, you are my son. Yes, it did to us in Jesus. So we even brought him to the song in that sense. There was a great Dominican event, it was great because an English Dominican, he used to say that after the fall and the redemption, there's no more hope for humanity. You can either become God or become less than animals. Animals. Insofar as the cruelty that we can do to one another. You know, the fact that we can actually destroy ourselves. Intellectually, intelligently. 
you know. And yet, uh, we also have within us in Christ the ability to enter into the divine realm itself and have the angels praising us because we're in God. We say a prayer. Very good. In the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, we ask you to pour your spirit into these young people. For you have made them the face of the church here in this campus. Give them courage. Give them prudence. Give them temperance. Give them a sense of justice. Fill them with the spirit of the truth. In faith, hope and charity. Comfort them in your love. Protect them in your mercy. And may they always come to know you, Lord, for you love them immensely, deeply and fully. Nobody loves us, Lord, the way you love us. Help us to discover that truth and to give ourselves to that truth. And dear Mother Mary, you will love us more than anyone after God. You want us to know the love of our, your son for us. Mary, bring us to the heart of Jesus, your beloved. Lord, I thank you for these men and women, my brothers and sisters. Thank you for their gifts and bless them. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, amen.